you'll open your Bibles today to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Thank you for being here on Being Neighborly Sunday. You know, for a literally 30 years, children learned what it meant to be neighborly by watching the public broadcasting station, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. 895 episodes, 31 years on the air, characters like King Friday the 13th, Queen Sarah Saturday, Henrietta Pussycat, Daniel Striped Tiger, Lady Elaine Fairchild, and Larry Horse. Children loved Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It won numerous Emmys and many, many awards for being a for being a children's program that, that literally captured the minds and the hearts of children over several decades. We watch it as we grow into adulthood and we wonder, uh, what was it that, that seemed to mesmerize the kids? We're used to shooting and car chases and all kinds of stuff like that. And we go back and we watch it and, and, we, and we see it and we think it's so slow and monotonous and, and uh, it borders on boredom. And yet, I think that Mr. Rogers captured the attention of children because there's something innate in children and really in all of us. And that is a desire to be a part of a community. To know people. To be, to be a part of a, a neighborhood. In fact, for many people, that's their dream when they marry. They want to they grow up, get married, buy a home in a neighborhood, and raise their children in that neighborhood. They want to know their neighbors on either side of them and across the street. They want to have neighborly gatherings. And in, in many of our minds, that's what Americana was meant to be. And Mr. Rogers tapped into that in the minds and the hearts of, of children, that they were they were part of a community, and when they turned on that television each day for 895 episodes, they were familiar with the characters, uh, they understood the storyline, and it resonated with who they were, and really deeper than they could have ever imagined what they would one day long to be a part of. And yet, if you look at the, the fabric of America culture today, we're anything but neighborhoods. In fact, uh, we put up large fences to keep people out. We have do not disturb signs that keep door-to-door salesmen away. And, and often the, the white flight, to not just the suburbs anymore, but, but out into the areas where we can have large pieces of land with very large fences to keep people at an arm's distance. It's, it's a reflection of well, it's a reflection of where our country has, has gone over the last 20 to, to 30 years. There are people that grow up in neighborhoods they wish they were never a part of. They grow up in areas of the city where you can't allow your children to go out and play. It's too dangerous. But inside the human heart is a desire for community. A desire to be a part 
of a neighborhood. It might look differently in, in one city than another city. It might look differently in one culture than another culture, but it's there. It's innate. It goes all the way back to the garden. You know, the garden was something of a neighborhood. It wasn't a heavily populated neighborhood in the beginning, just Adam and Eve and God. But there were two people in genuine fellowship and communion with God. And there was a couple that were deeply and passionately in love. And it's the kind of neighborhood that most of us would love to be a part of. It didn't take long until sin entered into the world and sin disrupted not just mankind's relationship to God, Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, God calling out, Adam, Adam, where are you? God knew exactly where Adam was. He was hoping that Adam would come to understand where he was. And then it didn't take long for Adam to blame Eve and for Eve to blame the serpent and for for mankind and the community that God had intended us to enjoy with himself and with one another was, was fractured and ruptured. And, well, although we've gone our own ways and we've done our own things, still deep in the human soul there's a desire for community. There's a desire for relationship. That's why... King Friday the 13th and Queen Sarah Saturday Saturday was so was so popular with children for over 30 years. Maybe the most famous parable that Jesus ever told was a parable about relationship, a parable about community, a parable about being a neighbor. The parable of the good Samaritan, well when you hear that the, the question resonates in the minds of those of us who know that story. Who is my neighbor? And from our earliest days of going to church, from the flannel graph Bible stories, we, we know that story. Even people that weren't raised in church, if they know anything about the Bible, if they know anything about the stories of Jesus, they know the story of the Good Samaritan because it it crosses generational lines. It, it crosses cultural lines. It's something that we can resonate with. It's something that we can understand. Well, I want to I talk with you this morning on the question, who is my neighbor? The question's asked in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and following. And I want you to notice with me as I read through this, the, the story's going to begin with a, a question, a question that is really disingenuous. Jesus is going to respond with the story of the Good Samaritan, and then he's going to point the finger very squarely and directly at the one who asked the question. Let me read beginning in verse 25. I'll read all the way through verse 37, and if you'll follow along as I read the Bible. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took him, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. I want you to notice that the story opens up with life's most important question. There can't be any more important question in life than what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a a question that punctuates this very book. Luke repeats it on numerous occasions because he wants us, as we read the gospel, to think about it. He wants it to resonate in our minds. He wants it to, to echo in our thoughts. He wants us to realize that when we've read it for the second or third time, it's the second or third time that we actually have heard it. In fact, if we could go back to Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist in Luke 3 is preaching to large audiences. They're coming from all the cities in and around Jerusalem, and they're going to the wilderness, the Judean wilderness. God's hand is obviously on him, and he's calling the people of God to repentance, And he's calling them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying to them, show the genuineness of your conversion, your relationship to God by how you live. And there's this repeated question from the common people in verse 10, from the tax collectors in verse 12, and from... The temple police in verse 13, what shall we do? Something within them resonated with what he was saying, and they knew that there needed to be a genuine, authentic response to the words that he was preaching. What shall we do? And that's what Luke would want from us. As we read the words of John the Baptist and they resonate in our minds, he wants us to be asking, yes, what shall we do? We go on to chapter 10 where we're at right now and a lawyer, a scribe, a religious leader says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? When we think of a lawyer, we think of someone that argues a case in a court of law. Uh, But he would have been a scribe, a professional religious scholar. We could go a little bit further in the book in chapter 18. Jesus is approached by a 
a genuinely good man. He's a wealthy man. Uh, he's, a, he's a man with a sincere interest in the things of God. And he approaches Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice the question is so much like the question of the scribe. The scribe's question is disingenuous. He's trying to trap Jesus. Notice it says in verse 25, put him to the test. And many questions aren't questions at all. They're just an attempt to trap an individual. But this man in Luke 18, he's, he's genuinely interested. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, Luke's the only one of the four writers of a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that wrote a second volume, that wrote another book. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to literally several thousand people on the day of Pentecost. And in fact, 3,000 people are going to be saved on that day. But at the very end of his sermon... He's he's pressing the issue of the gospel on them. And Luke writes in chapter 2, verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? They knew they needed to respond to the truth. They knew that they needed to respond to the message of the gospel. That they couldn't just sit sit there disengaged. Uh, that, that it wouldn't just work by osmosis, that they needed to respond to the preaching. And then in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas have been thrown in prison and they spend the entire night worshiping and praying. And the, the prison guard, he would have been a hardened man. He would have been a man that was involved in the beating of prisoners. He would have been a man that would have seen people at their worst. He was a man that was probably callous and indifferent to the suffering of others. And there was an earthquake, and he just supposed that as a result of the earthquake, most of the prisoners had fled and escaped, which would have meant that he was going to be executed. Regardless of the fact that it was an earthquake, he had the responsibility that no one escape. The walls come tumbling down. He's sure that there has been prisoners escaping. He's getting ready to commit suicide. Paul says, stop, listen, we're all here. And what he heard the night before, the singing, the praying, uh, the circumstances of the moment, he was overwhelmed. And he said in Acts chapter 16, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There's our question. Chapter 3, chapter 10, chapter 18 in the book of Luke. Chapter 2 and now chapter 16 in the book of Acts. Luke's wanting it to resonate in our minds. He's wanting us to have it echo in our thoughts. He's wanting us to be reminded each time we read it. I've heard that question before. I've seen that question before. I've dealt with that question before. And, And now we see the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It could not be any more simple, any more direct, any more straightforward, any more unencumbered by all kinds of cultural ideas. Believe in the Lord Jesus 
and you will be saved. Now, religions answer that question in a variety of ways, whether it's Hinduism or Islam, whether it's a cult like Mormonism or Jehovah, Jehovah Witness. But most of us have been raised, for the most part, in the, in the Bible-believing South. We've been raised in cultural Christianity. And often when you speak to someone that's been raised in cultural Christianity, you'll say to them, well, do you know the Lord Jesus? And they'll say, yes, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And we'll respond something like, well, tell me about it. When were you saved? Well, I walked down an aisle at the age of seven and shook the preacher's hand. And I would usually say, well, that's fantastic. I, 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 I affirm you for that, but tell me, when were you saved? Well, you don't understand, I was baptized in the First Baptist Church of such and such city in the panhandle of Florida. And I would say something like, that's fantastic, but when were you saved? I'll say something like, well, I've, I've always been a Christian. I was raised in the church. I've, I've always gone to church. I'll say, that's fantastic. Praise God for your parents or your grandparents that took you. But when were you saved? Jesus didn't say, shaking the preacher's hand is what was the result of salvation. Being baptized was the result of salvation. Attending church throughout childhood and your teenage years and into adulthood, he said, no, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So we see that, that question in verse 25. Jesus responds to his question with a question. He wants him to work it out for himself. He's a religious scholar. He's a rabbinic trained individual. So Jesus says in verse 26, what is it, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? He takes him to the Bible. He takes him to what we would consider to be our Old Testament. That's his Bible. That's our Bible. He points him to the Word of God. He points him to Scripture. He says, you can find the answer in Scripture. How does Scripture read to you? What does Scripture say to you about salvation? And he brings together two Old Testament passages of Scripture, one from the book of Deuteronomy and one from the book of Leviticus, one from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the other from Leviticus chapter 18, and he, he weds them together. Interestingly enough, Jesus did the very same thing the last week of his life. In Mark chapter 12, Mark describes a, a group of, of rabbis trying to trying to trip Jesus up by asking him the question, out of all the Old Testament, out of all of the scriptural commands, over 600 of them, out of all the scriptural commands, what's the, the most important? What's the, what's the singular most important? And Jesus takes Deuteronomy and Leviticus and he brings them together just like this man does. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Now he's not giving up anatomy lesson here where we're to divide up a person. What he's saying is you love God with your entire being. You love God with all that you have and all that you are. But only God can do that in you. But when you genuinely and authentically are converted, you love God with your entire being. And he says, we're not going to leave it there. We're not going to leave it with white middle class flight with large fences and keeping people at arm's distance and huddling in little communes and, and, little, and little Christian ghettos. No, we're not going to leave it there. And your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus said, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said, and, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He realized that Jesus is shining the spotlight on him. He's pointing his finger at him. So he says, who is my neighbor? Jesus illustrates it by telling the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Look with me beginning in verse 30. Again, the most famous parable that Jesus ever told. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a journey of about 17 miles. Still a journey of about 17 miles. Jerusalem still exists. Jericho still exists. It is a very arduous, dangerous journey. It was in Jesus' day and it is in some sense today. In Jesus' day, they called it the bloody way. It was, a, it was a, about a 3,300 foot drop in elevation from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it went through the Judean wilderness. Large cliffs on either side with very narrow roadway. Many a place, many a place for robber and thief to hide and then to, to jump upon an unsuspecting soul. And so we have a, a man that's left Jerusalem. He's likely been there to worship and he's on his way to Jericho and, and robbers fall on him. They, they, they jump him and they strip him and beat him and, and they leave him half dead. In verse 31, there's a thief coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's, he's been in Jerusalem serving God. He's been in Jerusalem serving in the temple. He's been in, in Jerusalem doing the things priests do. He's a little bit tired, a little bit worn out. It's been a busy week, a hard week, a long week of, of serving God. And, and he sees across the road a man that looks, well, he's definitely incapacitated. And whether he's alive or dead, he's not sure. He's lying in a pool of blood. Maybe there's the occasional groan that lets him know there's still just a, a tad bit of life left in. But what can, what can he do? Uh, he, he's not, interested, he, he's not getting interested in getting involved in somebody else's problem. It's not his problem. It's, it's that man's problem. And he's definitely not my neighbor. I don't have any idea who he is. If he were my neighbor, if he lived in the neighborhood that I lived in, if he lived near me and I knew him and I was confident that the situation was going to be safe and secure, I, I'd stop. But I've been busy. I've been serving God, and, and I don't know who the person is. And so the priest passes him by. A short time later, a Levite comes. He's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho as well. He's been, he's been assisting the priest. That's what Levites did. Levites assist priests. And so he sees the man, and now there's barely a groan, and he's too far away across the street even to see if his body is, is rising and falling with, with a breath of air. He's bloody, battered, beaten. Now, if I knew him, the Levite thinks, if I knew him, if he were my neighbor... If he were my, my next-door neighbor, I can tell you I would stop. There's no doubt in my mind. If I knew him, I, I would stop. If he was, a, if he was a, a person that I was familiar with. But it's a dangerous situation. He's already been beaten and left for dead. I have no idea 
where these thieves and mongrels are, and so I think it's safer for me. And there's not much I can do anyway. The man's not going to make it. The man's not going to live. The man is as good as dead. I'm just going to keep going, and on he goes. So far, so good. The crowd loves it. Uh, The crowd loves it because the priest and the Levites were elitist. They thought they were better than other people for the most part. The majority of them looked down their noses at others. They, They were more holy, the priests and the Levites. They were more biblically instructed than the average person. They served in the temple. They were very scrupulous about being religious. And, and so for them to look like, well, to look like goats, so to speak, to look bad, they, they would have thought, this is a good parable. I really like it. Until he says, but a Samaritan. See, the, not every Jew, but many Jews were racist. Of course, not every Jew. There were Simeon and Anna and Joseph and Mary and Zechariah and Elizabeth and all kinds of many, many others. But from the earliest days, many of the rabbis taught every bad thing that's ever happened to us has happened to us because of Samaritans and Gentiles. They've constantly led us down the wrong path. Gentiles were created to fuel the fire of hell. That's what many of the rabbis taught. And the Samaritans were racially compromised. They, they were Jewish people that intermingled, intermarried with pagans, and, and, and now they have a, an aberrant theology. They're not like us. They don't look like us. They don't act like us, and we don't have anything to do with them. It would be like, it would be like going into the, into the Old South. And maybe not so old south. Into a church, white church, maybe filled with a lot of white-collar racist. Blue-collar racist. And telling a story where the local, the local deacon's a bad guy, they like that kind of story. Uh, the preacher is a bum, they, they really like that. Uh, because they realize that often... Pastors and deacons are elitist and they look down on other people. They really like that. But when the hero becomes an African-American, they don't like that so much. They don't care for that kind of talk. They don't like that kind of thinking. Because they're not like us. Well, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Because he was communicating to that man, you want to know who your neighbor is? Your neighbor is a person in need and a person that is racially and ethnically different than you are. And so the Samaritan does all the right things, all the good things, all the the neighborly things. Notice how uh, the Samaritan goes to the man. He pours healing oil and wine on his wounds. He bandages them up. He puts him on the back of his animal. He brings him into town. He puts him in an inn. He cares for him through the night. And then when he gets ready to leave, he tells the innkeeper, here's some denarii, here's some money for what I already owe you. But listen, I'm on a business trip. On my way back, I will stop. I'll pay you whatever else there is in the way of expenditures if you'll watch out and take care of this man. 
Now, he must have been a good man because the innkeeper trusts him. The innkeeper believes that this guy's genuinely, actually coming back. And, and he demonstrates for us what, what it means to be a neighbor. This is exactly what James, the half-brother of Jesus, meant in James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, when he writes, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. A person that has shaken the preacher's hand and been baptized in the baptismal waters who has no evidence of genuine conversion is probably not genuinely converted. Well, at least that's what James says. John the Apostle, not writing too many years before he died, put it this way. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Jesus says, this Samaritan is showing us what it means to love your neighbor. But notice I want you to look at Jesus' final comments in verses 36 and 37. He wants us to understand that the real issue is not who is my neighbor, but is my neighbor's neighbor truly saved? That's the point. The point isn't so much who is my neighbor, but is my neighbor's neighbor, that's me, truly, genuinely, authentically saved And is it demonstrated in my interactions with people? He says in verse 36, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. You know, Christianity doesn't get more basic than that. A caring, compassionate heart is one indicator that a person may very well be saved. It doesn't save you. Joining the Peace Corps and serving impoverished people doesn't save you. But of evidence that you may be saved is you have a heart for people. That's where the gospel begins. Not with us, but with God. Because the Bible says it's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance, to repentant faith. It's not the hellfire and brimstone of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 2. It's the kindness of God. Is God seeing us in our need, in our humiliation in our spiritual destitution and reaching out to us like this Samaritan reached out to this fallen human being. Jesus isn't saying that we are saved by doing good 
what he's saying is, as we're saved, we will demonstrate it by doing good. You know, there are people here today, and you long for the kind of community that you reflect and remember in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. The kind of stories that were told that that caused you to, to feel like you were, you were a part of something. It lasted only 30 minutes a, a week. But as a little child, you can remember, or maybe you have children that you remember, that they would, they would be literally infatuated with that show. Because there's something in the human heart looking for community. What Adam and Eve lost, God is going to restore. What what Adam and Eve did when they fractured their relationship with one another and with God is going to be restored. The relationship with God is restored in this life. And we demonstrate that restoration of relationship with God by by being neighborly, uh, by doing good and reaching out. Uh, But there's going to be a, a return to the garden, so to speak, if you'll look in Revelation chapter 22 with me, the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. In fact, it's the very last chapter of the Bible, and we're going to look at the very first verses in the very last chapter of the Bible, and what they tell us is what was lost in Eden will be restored in eternity. And the process begins in this life by being restored to a relationship with God and then giving evidence of that restored relationship, not by racist bigotry or Christian ghettos and isolationist mentality that tries to, to keep the bad people at a distance, but by taking advantage of the opportunities God gives us to do gospel work. John wrote in chapter 22, verse 1, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have any need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. These words are faithful and true. Who is my neighbor? My neighbor is the person that God has placed around me, that he intentionally wants me to be, that he wants me to be intentional about loving and caring because he's providentially put us in a neighborhood together. And it's the person that we providentially come in contact with along the way that we have gospel opportunities to minister and and serve. And that community, that perfect community we long for now is a community that we'll experience and enjoy in heaven forever. But, 
but it's not our default community. It's not where we're, we're going by birth. In fact, our default community is not, it's not heaven, it's hell. Our default community is not camaraderie and fellowship and, and, inter- and eternal pleasure and joy. Our default community is isolation and loneliness and despair forever and ever. But the good news of the gospel is this, what, uh, what was messed up in the garden can be made right today. We're going to sing a song. We're going to stand in just a moment. We're all going to join Craig as he leads us in singing. And it may be that you would like to come forward during this time. And by coming forward, we're definitely not saying you're becoming a Christian. But we'd love to talk with you privately, confidentially, without, without uh, coercing or manipulating you in any way about how you can find true community first and foremost with God and then with the people of God. It may be that you've made a decision, hey, I think I want to be a part of this church. As long as I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, I'm putting down my roots, I'm putting down my stake. This is the church where I'm going to develop community. This is my, this is my first circle of neighborhood right here. We would love for you to come down and allow us to walk you through the membership process as well. I'm going to ask you if you'll stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for the goodness that we know in and through Jesus Christ. We thank you for how Jesus is able to use simple stories and communicate through them profound truth. And so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that in these moments that we might respond in a way that is honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.